As we begin to study the early church, we observe that it had its problems and its growing pains, but what we find when we begin to look deeper into its history is a movement that was intended to be a model for the ages, one that is still quite relevant today. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. As our study in the book of Acts continues, we find that Peter has assumed leadership of the church, and the body is functioning well as a fellowship of renewed believers, united in heart and mind, and witnessing to the resurrection of Christ. Listen now as Dr. Boyce describes the early church, a model of what every fellowship of Jesus Christ should be. I don't know if you enjoy getting missionary letters like I do. I suppose in this age of massive publications and communications that there are people who get those letters and throw them away the way they do the advertisements that come in the mail. But I, for my part, enjoy them. I enjoy reading them because by reading them I feel that a a door is open for me into uh, the Christian church in some relatively remote area of the world. I get a portrait, a picture, a glimpse into what God is doing somewhere else. I say that because when we come to this book of Acts that we're studying, we have something like that, only it's not a portrait into a church that exists today, but it's a glimpse into a church that existed many hundreds of years ago, almost 2,000 years ago. We have a glimpse into the early church. The church as it existed in the first days after Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and blessed their witness and through their testimony to the resurrected Christ began to draw men and women from all walks of life and all nationalities into this one great glorious fellowship of the people of God that we call the church. Now that early church had its problems, it wasn't a perfect church has its sins, just as our churches today have sins. When we come to the fifth chapter that we're going to be looking at next week, we're going to see one of them. And it was a very serious thing indeed. God himself treated it very seriously. But still, when we look in these early chapters at this church, what we find is something which is encouraging and is undoubtedly intended by God to be a model and encouragement for us. We've seen one portrait of this early church already. We found it at the very end of chapter 2, after Pentecost, which is described at the beginning of the chapter in Peter's first great sermon and the work of the Holy Spirit to draw many to faith in Christ. We have that picture of the church observing all the apostles' teaching and giving attention to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. That's described in verses 42 to 47. Now, when we come to the end of chapter 4, which is the point to which our studies have brought us tonight, we find another such portrait. It's a portrait, as I have tried to explain by the title of this sermon, of this church at worship and at work. At worship, because in the first half of this section, that is, from verses 23 to 31, we find Peter leading the church, the fellowship of the people of God, in a great prayer of praise and thanksgiving. 
and then at work, because in the latter portion of the chapter, from verse 32 to the end, we see them actually operating as a fellowship of renewed people. We find them there, united in heart and mind, sharing everything they have and doing their best to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what I'd like us to look at. Some things we look at in the Bible are discouraging. At least we see ourselves judged by what we find there. We look at it and, and uh, our hearts are, are cast down. We say, we're not like that. This is not meant to be a discouraging picture. It's meant to be an encouraging one. Because what we find here in the early church is what, in essence, every true fellowship of Jesus Christ is. It's what we are if we really are thankful to God for what he's done for us through the Savior. Now, it's important to see this in the context, and for that I remind you of what we have already been looking at in chapters 3 and 4. The background is this first miracle that was done by the Lord Jesus Christ through the hand of his apostles. Peter and John were on their way up to the temple. There they saw a lame man, a man who had been lame for many, many years. We're told in the fourth chapter that he was over 40 years old when he was healed. So he'd been there for a long, long time, and everybody knew him. This was his place. That's where he begged. Everybody knew that man who was there. And he was in a good place because it's where people went through the gate to worship God. And it was hard to go in to worship God with a stony heart. Uh, if you were going to approach him, it had to be with a gracious, yielded, sensitive heart. And I'm sure this, this man, who was impoverished because of his lameness, uh, received the bounty of many sensitive, uh, worshiping people. At any rate, as he lay there, Peter and John went by, and he asked for alms. Peter said, we don't have any gold or silver to give you, and at that point the man must have drawn back, greatly disappointed, but Peter said something that was even greater. He said, we don't have any silver and gold to give you, but such as we have, we do give you. And so, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man did. We, we don't know all of the dynamics of this. We probably should assume that this man knew about Jesus of Nazareth and had faith in him. And when the, the point was put to him, when the challenge was made, he believed that that Jesus of Nazareth, about whom he had heard so much and in whom he was already faintly believing, really was able to heal him. And so he responded in faith and we're told that assisted by Peter and John, who took him by the hand and lifted him up, he found faith restored and he went with them into the temple, leaping and jumping and praising God. It's really a marvelous picture that Luke paints for us here as he describes that first miracle. Peter and John were happy, the Christians were happy, the lame man was happy, but the rulers of the people were not happy. Now, it wasn't exactly the kind of situation that you have in some war-torn countries where there's a curfew. Everybody has to be off the streets by 9 o'clock at night, and there can be no gatherings of any groups greater than 6 or 7. It wasn't exactly that. But these were volatile times. The leaders were worried whenever anything too intense began to happen. And here there was a big crowd gathered around. And there was somebody speaking. It was Peter who was preaching the gospel because he had a marvelous audience as a result of this great miracle. And they didn't like that. And so they sent the temple guard. They hauled Peter and John in. They began to question them. And as they began to question these men, it it says they 
or astonished because they weren't learned men. That is, they hadn't been trained in the rabbinical schools. And yet here they were, not only eloquently preaching something they earnestly believed, but courageous enough to do it in the face of the Sanhedrin. Because the message, as it turned out, was about Jesus, whom the Sanhedrin had been most instrumental in seeing crucified, and Peter and John didn't hesitate to say that they had done it and were answerable to God for his death. And yet they did it courageously. And so they looked at these men, they were, they were greatly astounded by what was happening, and they said to themselves, whatever are we going to do? This is a picture of great frustration here, and it's why I'm going into this, because it's important background for what Peter is going to lead the early church in doing later as they worship God for his deliverance. The background, uh, the part of these religious leaders, is frustration. Uh, They had thought, because this was one source of their frustration, that they had done away with this business of Jesus of Nazareth by the crucifixion. He'd caused trouble for three years. He'd gone around all over the country preaching these crazy things, winning a lot of disciples, moving a lot of people, but doing it entirely apart from the established religious structures and and taking it upon himself, him, a, a man with no official learning and no official sanction by this august body of Jewish leaders, taking it upon himself to interpret the law, and not only to interpret the law, but to do it in a way contrary in some cases to their regulations. Such men are dangerous, and so they, they did away with him. But here, within a short time after this man's death and his alleged resurrection, there were men who were like him, untaught, and yet who were equally courageous, and who, like Jesus, were beginning to turn the city upside down. They'd have been a great deal more frustrated and frightened if they'd have known what was going to happen or what Jesus had said, because he had said to them, I'm sending you to be witnesses not only to Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost regions of the world. Sometime later, when Paul was carrying out the same ministry and came to a certain city, they said in reference to him, these men who are turning the world upside down have come here also. And that's certainly what Peter and John and all the others were doing. These men had only begun to see the world upside down, and, and that same message had gone on and on. They were greatly frustrated. And there was something else that frustrated them, something I haven't referred to earlier. In verse 14 of that fourth chapter that we're studying, though we've passed on beyond this now, it says, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. You know, I I don't know if you appreciate this sort of thing as you study the Bible, but Luke certainly used that word standing intentionally. I mean, it, it would have been quite all right. It would have been perfectly good historical narration to say there was the man who had been healed with them. Nothing wrong with that. That that was true. He he was there. He was with them. But you see, he's a man who had been lame. He was a man who couldn't stand. And so Luke says the man who had been healed, the lame man who had been healed, was there in the presence of the Sanhedrin with Peter and John, the vehicles by God of his healing, standing with them. And everybody knew him, you see. This wasn't some story of some supposed far-off healing somewhere that may or may not have been true. This is a man they had seen day after day after day at the gate of the temple. All these priests, all these leaders of the people had gone in and out, in and out, in and out, every time they did it, several times a day. 
because they were pious Jews and they lived in Jerusalem. They'd seen that man. They knew that man. And here he was, standing, standing. And what a frustration it was. Now, I want to make an application of that, and I want to do it in this way. That word standing is the basis of the word for resurrection. Now, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it's this word that's used for resurrection. The word for resurrection has a preface in front of it. This is isteme, and anisteme is the way you get the word for resurrection. So, in the Greek mind, as the Greek talked about the resurrection, uh, the ones who were resurrected were standing up ones. Of course, you can understand why. A dead man is lying down, a resurrected man is standing up. And that's why they use the word. And I want to throw another text into that. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing about his aspirations as a follower of Jesus Christ, says in Philippians in the third chapter that his desire in life is to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. What did Paul mean by that? Did Paul mean that somehow if he suffered enough with Jesus Christ, Jesus might raise him at the last day? I don't think Paul meant that at all. Paul didn't have the faintest doubt that he was going to be raised in body with Christ at the last day. He's not talking about the future here. He's talking about the present. You see, he's saying here as he talks about his aspirations as a Christian, he wants to be so conformed to Jesus Christ in his death that is, dying to self in order that he may live to Jesus, that right here and now he stands before the people as a resurrected one. In other words, everybody else, spiritually speaking, is flat on their back, and Paul wanted to be known as one who was standing up. Now, I say that in order to say that what really does frustrate the world is not the words of Christians but the resurrected power of Jesus Christ that makes us standing up ones in their midst. You see, here's somebody who before his conversion was a great scoundrel, did everything he could to get ahead. He would tramp on anybody. His motto was that it's a dog's world and, and what you, you have to do is get ahead by whatever means. And then he meets Jesus Christ and he's transformed and he's not like he was before. He's in the midst of dead men, but he's not a dead man. He's a resurrected man. He's a, a standing up one. Or here's another person who was a great gossip. All they liked to do was spread stories. And then they met Jesus Christ and they began to learn something about him and learn what truth was. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. They learned they have to speak truth, and so their speech has changed. And now in the midst of that same company, company of people that operate like dead people, spiritually speaking, here you have another standing up one. That is always going to be the frustration of the world, and that was the frustration of these leaders. Oh, if it were merely a matter of philosophy... They could have out-argued Peter. If it were only a matter of an interpretation of the law, they could have interpreted it as they thought, and perhaps with the conviction of the people, better than John. But you see, there was that standing up one. There was that man who had been healed, and they couldn't say anything against that. So they did what the world does. The world threatened them. And behind the threats, there was imprisonment. And eventually that happened. And after imprisonment, there's death. The world can always kill you. And eventually that happened. But in the meantime, there was the standing up one. And they knew it, and everybody else knew it as well. Now, at this early stage, they really didn't have anything to do. They couldn't uh, 
couldn't stop it. They couldn't very well, for the sake of a healing, kill Peter. So they stopped at the threatening, and they let them go. And Peter and John went out from that company. They rejoined the brethren, which we find in this latter portion of the chapter, and they had an impromptu worship service as they began to thank God for what he had done in this first significant appearance of the disciples of Jesus Christ before the mighty of this world. Apparently, they, they broke into prayer instinctively. You see, verse 24 says, when they heard this, Peter and John came, they told their story, how they had appeared before the Sanhedrin, how God had given them words to say. Jesus himself had said, when you appear before the rulers of this world, don't give thought in advance what you're going to say, but it'll be given you what to say. And that is certainly what happened. They gave a courageous testimony, and they explained that. Perhaps they even explained it in reference to what Jesus Christ had said. And we're told, when they heard this, Instinctively, as I say, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, and they began to praise him for his deliverance. Now, the prayer is given. Perhaps Peter is the one that led it. I don't know that, but I do know that they began to quote from the second psalm. You see, when God's people worship God, they, they always do two things. They pray, and they reflect on the Scriptures. Prayer is our talking to God. The scriptures are God's talking to us. The two go together. You pray aright when you're praying scripturally. And you study the scriptures right when you study them prayerfully. And here's what this early church was doing. They began to reflect on the scriptures. And as they began to pray, the scriptures, as it were, welled up in their consciousness. And they articulated their praise to God in God's own words. The words they had in scripture. It's amazing, isn't it? I, I hope... You're beginning to get this by now, but it's amazing, I think, that already, so early in the church, everything they do, all their thoughts, all their reflections, when it comes to the gospel, are based in some way or another upon the Word of God. And I say that's amazing because there was a time not very long before this, six weeks before this, seven weeks before this, eight weeks before this, when they didn't understand these things at all. You'll recall that Jesus Christ tried to teach them about his death and resurrection during the days of his ministries, and, and, and he did so scripturally. We're told again and again he began to teach them that he, that he had to fulfill the scriptures by being delivered up to the chief priests and to the Gentiles and to be tried and beaten and crucified, but he said, the third day I will rise again. And they didn't understand any of it at all. He was teaching them. He was the greatest teacher that ever lived. He was expounding the scriptures, and the scriptures made it perfectly clear, but they just didn't get it. It didn't fit their preconceptions. They said to themselves, you're the Messiah, and the Messiah doesn't die. We know that. The Messiah is the one who reigns in power. The Messiah is the one who's going to drive out the Romans. Why? I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. And when Jesus said that on one occasion, Peter had the temerity to rebuke him. He said, far be it from you, Lord, that you should ever suffer and die. And, uh, and Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. You're not being led by the Holy Spirit. That's the devil speaking through you. I must die, you see. But still, they didn't get it. And now look, it's just a short time after. Not very long. The passage, as I say, of weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, very short time afterwards. They begin to speak about the significance of his death and resurrection, and instinctively and extensively, 
they refer to the Old Testament. You see what we found already? We have found in the first chapter that when they began to choose a replacement for Judas, they did so on the basis of what it said in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And we saw that when Peter stood up, began to preach in the day of Pentecost, he made the basis of his sermon three great texts from the Old Testament. He preached from Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, the prophecy of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the latter days. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, that prophesied the resurrection of Christ. And Psalm 110, verse 1, in which the Lord, that is God Almighty, said to my Lord, that is Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And even in chapter 4, when Peter appeared before the Sanhedrin, he quoted from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. You see what's happening? Their minds have been transformed because, although in a certain sense you would say, being devout Jews, they knew the Scriptures, they read them and they heard them read in the synagogues, and I, I'm sure they even memorized them. They, they knew these words the way people used to know the Bible in our country when they really did memorize it. They don't anymore. They, they, they knew the words, but they didn't really know the Scriptures. And then Jesus died, rose again, the Holy Spirit came, and their eyes were opened, and now they saw the Old Testament in an entirely new light. Whenever I think about that, I, I think about how the Lord himself was instrumental in doing that with the Emmaus disciples and their friends on that first Easter day. The story is told in Luke 24, and if you read it carefully, you find that in that chapter there are three great openings. First of all, when he meets with the two of them on the way to Emmaus, they don't understand what's happening or has happened. We're told he opened the scriptures to them. He could have said, you say, look, it's me, Jesus, don't you understand? But he didn't. He went to the Scriptures, and he opened the Scriptures. It means he began to explain what the Scriptures taught concerning the resurrection. That's the first thing. And then secondly, while they were sitting with him and he broke bread in their midst, it says their eyes were opened and they perceived who he was. They hadn't perceived that earlier. Their eyes had been blinded, but now suddenly their eyes were open. First the Scriptures, you see, and then their eyes. And then we're told, thirdly, later on in the chapter, that after they went back to Jerusalem with the message, we're all assembled there in the upper room, and Jesus came and appeared in their midst, it says, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You see, earlier he opened the Scriptures, then he opened their eyes, now he opened their minds, and from that point on, they never understood the Old Testament in the same way again, or to put it in more correct language, for the first time in their lives, they really understood it. And now you see, when they turned to Genesis, they found Jesus there. When they turned to Exodus, they found Jesus there. When they turned to the Psalms, they found Jesus there. And when they speak about him and when they pray to God, these words just naturally come tumbling out. I wonder if you do that when you pray to God. You express your delight in him in the words of Scripture. It's natural to do it if you know Scripture. And if you don't, well, that's a great deficiency in your Christian life. Now let's look at the text Peter uses especially. It's the second psalm. It's the first time this has appeared. That second psalm is one of the great psalms. I guess they're all great, but it's one of 
one of the especially great psalms, the Psalter. It's a psalm of human rebellion, and that's the portion of it that Peter preaches right at the beginning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. You know that psalm, you know what they say, they go on to say, this united force of the rulers of this world, let's break their bands and cast their fetters from us. They're rebelling against God, you see, God and his anointed, that is, God the Father and God the Son. They say, as they did at the time of Jesus Christ, we will not have this man to rule over us. And as they said to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. See, Caesar we can manage. We know how to deal with Caesar, but we certainly aren't going to have God as our king. We certainly aren't going to have this man Jesus as our king. I want to uh, break any claim he may have on my life because I want to run my life myself. And that, of course, that's the spirit of the human heart. That's what sin is. Sin is saying to God, I will not acknowledge you to be God. Not for me. You can be God for somebody else, but not for me. I'm my own God. That's what sin really is, you see. And here in this great psalm, you have a classic Old Testament expression of it. Why is it that Peter and John and the others quote this on this occasion? Well, the answer is obvious. It comes to mind because this is what the Sanhedrin has been doing. They did it in the case of Jesus. They said, we won't have this man to rule over us. And now they were doing it in the case of his disciples. They were saying, we will not hear their testimony. Here were men who were instrumental in the hands of God in the healing of a lame man. They gave glory to Jesus Christ, saying, it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth that this man is made whole. And the leaders of the people, the ones who should be most sensitive to spiritual things and certainly should search out the cause of a miracle and give God glory if that is the way it happened, these men simply said, we forbid you to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. They didn't want to hear it. They said, you see, we will not have this man to be our king. And you also know, if you know that second psalm, what God's response is. Here are all the rulers of the world taking arms against the Almighty, gathering up all their weapons, all their missiles, all their tanks, all their guns to resist God and break his claim upon them. And what does it say? Does it say that God in heaven trembles at the united opposition of the race? It doesn't say anything of the sort. It's the only place in the Bible, to my knowledge, that we're told that God laughs. It says the Lord laughs. The Lord has them in derision. The Lord says, ha, 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 they think they can break my bonds. What folly sin leads men and women to. And he turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, his anointed, and says, See, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now you see, it's perfectly evident why the early church was praising God in those terms. They had said, you see, the Sanhedrin, We'll get rid of Jesus. We'll kill Jesus. We'll do away with his influence. And God in power raised him from the dead. And we've just read about the ascension. God brought him up to heaven and seated upon his holy hill in Zion. The king, the king, the king, the Lord of all the earth. 
And now they were doing the same thing to the disciples. They're saying, don't preach in the name of Jesus. You can't preach in the name of Jesus. And what did they say? They said, God is going to exalt Jesus. And so we praise him for it. You see, nothing is going to frustrate God. You see, that's why they begin by saying, Sovereign Lord. That's the first time in Acts that there's been a prayer precisely this way. Sovereign Lord. Why? Because God is sovereign. It doesn't make any difference whether men and women like it. God isn't asking their opinion. God is God. God is sovereign. God will exalt Jesus Christ. And these men, these early Christians, are saying, oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful it is to know that by the grace of God and by the grace of God to be on the winning side. Now, you say, they might put the apostles in jail. And the answer is, not only might they, they did. You say, they they might put them in chains. And the response is, not only might they put them in chains, they did put them in chains. You say, they might kill them. And the response is, they did. And yet, you see, Jesus is upon God's holy hill. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the ruler in Zion. The servants you can bind, but the word of God is not bound. And that unleashed, unbound, powerful word reached out from that remote city of the Roman Empire to go throughout the entire world. Well, we come to the second section of this, and we see this brief little vignette that reflects on the church in these great early days. This is like Eden. Oh, I know they were sinful, but it was still a glorious time. And Luke, the author of the book, once more sums up what God was doing among them. Notice, first of all, verse 32, they were one in heart and mind. That's the foundation of everything they were going to do. I have spoken of this as the church at work. They were at work. They were doing a great work, the greatest work there is. And this is the foundation. They were one in heart and mind. The Greek text literally says heart and soul. I read that. I, I don't know why they changed it. I suppose because it sounds like the old song, heart and soul, I fell in love with you. I don't know. Maybe they thought that sounded inappropriate, so they changed it to heart and mind. Maybe... Maybe the translator sees something in that that goes beyond what I see. Perhaps it does imply mind. And if that's the case, it's significant. It's not only that they were one in heart, that is one in spirit, that they were committed to the same thing, they had the same experience, they wanted to do the same task, but they were also one in mind. That is, they thought the same thoughts, they had the same theology, they acknowledged the same Lord. As I say, I don't know whether that's a proper translation or not, but I do know that that is a proper foundation for any Christian work proper foundation for anything we do. We should be one in heart and mind. Same theology, same desires. You see, if we are, all we're doing is realizing in a practical way the thing for which the Lord Jesus Christ himself prayed. Jesus prayed in John 17 that his disciples might be one even as the Father and the Son are one. He spelled it all out. It's the longest section there as he begins to deal with unity. Now, it's not a Unity that's conformity, where everybody's alike. It's not a unity where everyone's forced into the same organization. It's not that. The worst times in the history of the church have been when everyone's been part of one great big organization. 
just becomes corrupt. It's not that kind of a unity. It's a unity patterned on the unity of the Father and the Son. That is, it's a unity of mind and will and love and purpose. And that's what the church should experience. There are things that divide us. We have different points of view, and there are different things about which we're concerned. We have different ministries, and there are different talents that are given to us and different gifts, so we function differently. There's nothing wrong with that. That's proper. That's God's giving. But you see, as a foundation for effective work, we must be one, as these early Christians were, one in heart and mind. And then it says next that they shared everything they have. That is, not only uh, were, they, were they one, the foundation of the work, they were generous, and that was the validation of it. What it means is that the Spirit of Jesus Christ had come to live within them. Before this, they weren't generous. We're not generous apart from the work of Christ. Everyone's out for himself. People who speak about the world and speak in cynical terms are expressing what's a reality. That's what the world is like. Oh, people are polite, you know, and, and, and the more enlightened of the people you deal with, apart from Jesus Christ, know that if you want to get something done, if you want to get what you want, you have to get it sometimes through other people, and so you have to keep other people happy, and the way to do that is to do something for them, and then they do something for you, and so forth. But the, the basis of it all is not generosity, it's selfishness. And yet you see here is something new in the world. People who have come to know a God whose basic nature is grace or generosity and who didn't have to do anything for us, who could have let us go to hell and we deserved it and he would have been perfectly just if that was all there was. But in spite of that, a, a God who was generous with us and sent Jesus Christ, that great gift of God to die for us that we might be saved. You see, nobody who has ever really come to know that, to understand that, that that's what reality is all about. God who is gracious and who has given his son for our salvation. Nobody who has ever really understood that could just go on and be the way they were before. And it follows from that, you see, as if somebody's heard that and says, I believe it, but they go on in just the way they were before. They haven't really understood it. They're not born again. They're not saved. You see, when you come to realize that, your nature is changed, and that's what happened to these early Christians. They shared what they had. Now, some people have looked at that and said, well, they weren't very wise in the way they went about it. And that may be true. I, I know from a human point of view that there are many acts of generosity done by Christian people that are not wise. They, they, they give more money than, as we would say, they can afford to give. But I think that shows more about our limited expectations of God's blessing than it does about our understanding of finance. You see, they, they gave generously because God had given to them. And then you see, not only did they have a foundation for their work, and not only did they have a verification of it in their changed lives, they had the work itself. And the work itself, as we've seen again and again, and is expressed here in verse 33, is to testify to the gospel. Here it says, to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And as they did that, much grace was upon them all. When they were praying earlier in this section, one of the requests they had was that God would not abandon them in power, but that God would stay with them and do great, great works. 
And we're told that God responded to their prayer, that he answered it, that he did it. And what happened is that the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, what? They spoke the word of God boldly. That's the work of God, to speak of Jesus Christ, to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to find that God, by his Spirit and in his own power, uses that to draw men and women to himself. You, by being a standing up one, are the verifying data of the resurrection. You show to a world whose eyes are blind what it really means to be a child of God a new-made creature in Jesus Christ. But it's by your words, by the words of the gospel which God blesses, that those who are dead themselves are made alive and find salvation. Oh, my God, give us grace to be faithful to that task. There are all sorts of things that can distract us from it, all sorts of things we can do instead. But oh, my God, make us faithful to speak his word boldly as these early Christians did. Let us pray. Father, we see in a passage like this what the church can be and what we are in part by your grace. When we speak of unity or generosity or witness, we recognize that those are things that by your grace have existed among your people at all times and exist among us. Our Father, we, we do want to be single-minded in that. We want a focusing of our activity and intention upon the gospel and the salvation of the lost, and only you can do that for us. Grant our Father that it might be so, that we might be known here as a congregation of standing up ones, resurrected ones in Christ, who speak often frequently, lovingly, and effectively of Him. And because they do, and because you love Him and desire to glorify Him and honor such testimony, we find many others coming to know Him as the Savior through that testimony. We pray in Jesus' name.